This passage is all about love. This passage is all about love. In particular, the love of God for us. And we're going to learn, first thing, the basis of love. That's the first thing we're going to learn, the basis of love. And that, which, that protects us from disordered love. That's the second thing we're going to see, that the basis of love protects us from disordered love. And number three, it leads us into the truth of love, to the truth of love. Now, there's a story about the Apostle John recorded for us by the historian Eusebius. And it's a fascinating story. So the Apostle John, as we know, wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Uh, big, contributed a great amount to the, the books of the Bible. And he basically reached out to this young man, converted him to Jesus. He ends up discipling this young man and taking this young man um, to be, you know, someone that he's going to invest all his attention to. And so this is the Apostle John, right? He walked with Jesus. He's an important guy, but he's made a deliberate attempt that he's going to disciple this young man. But somebody's called him away. He has to head off to Ephesus, which coincidentally is the letter that we're reading right now, the church that it was to. And so he heads off to Ephesus. But before he goes, he goes up to the pastor and he says, take good care of this young man. I'm going to leave him to you, and when I come back, I'm going to pick up where I left off and continue discipling him. So John leaves, does whatever he needs to do in Ephesus, and returns. And he comes and finds the church without the young man in it. And he goes up to the pastor and he says, where is he? Where's the young man? And the pastor says, he is dead. Our brother is dead. And John's like, what do you mean dead? And he says, dead to God. He has committed robbery, and he has run away from the faith, and he's run off into the mountains, and now he hangs out with a bunch of bandits. And so John immediately says, get me a horse. And John, at this point, is in potentially his 80s, most likely 70s or his 80s, and he says, get me a horse, and he wants to run right up into that mountains and find this young man. And everyone in the church is saying, no, John, you can't go up there. The moment they see you, they will kill you. They don't let anyone anywhere near their hideouts. And so John gets onto his horse, he gallops his horse over to the mountains, doesn't care what they say about it, and immediately the bandits rush over to him to stop him, realise he's an old man, and instead decide they're just going to take him prisoner and take everything that he has. And he says, you know, take everything I have, I only ask one thing, bring me to your leaders. Bring me to your leaders. So they bring him to the leaders, and guess who their leader is? This young man is their leader. And it says at that moment, the moment the young man sees John approaching, he runs, he flees in the other direction. And everyone that's in this bandit hideout is thinking, why is this guy so afraid of this old, frail man? And it says that he runs armed, he runs with weapons. And John, it says he forgets his age and he runs after this, um, after this guy. And he says this, he says, why, my son, do you flee from me? Your own father, unarmed, aged. Pity me, my son, fear not, you have still hope of life. I will give account to Christ for you, if need be. I will willingly endure your, uh, your death as the Lord suffered death for us. Uh, so he will endure death on behalf of this um, guy, that's what that means. For you I will give up my life, stand, believe, Christ has sent me. And the young man stops and breaks down and weeps in that moment. And it says that he trembles and weeps bitterly and John embraces him and the young man confesses his sins and he baptizes himself, as Eusebius puts it, again with his tears. It's a fascinating story. 
And you may think, a guy like John, you might say, man, like, where do you get that sort of boldness? Where do you get that sort of confidence to want to run up into the mountains where there's bandits who will put you to death the moment they see you, run up just for the sake of this young man's soul? Where do you get those kind of guts? Where do you get that kind of freedom? Where do you get that kind of courage? Well, John, in his own words, in 1 John 3.1, might say something like this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The secret is this. You have fellowship with God. You can know the eternal God, not just know things about Him. And that's why, here in the letter of Ephesians, Paul can say, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. See, the reason John can do such a daring thing and run into the bandit mountains and risk his own life and forget his age is love. That is why John can do that. Because John loved that young man. Despite the fact that this young man fled, despite this young man abandoned everything that John had taught him, John was moved by love. And the love of Christ is transformational. See, Paul calls us here to be imitators of God, in verse 1. Imitators of God, not as simply just as Christians. He could say, walk, uh, walk in, be imitators of God as Christians, but instead he says, as beloved children. As beloved children. And that changes everything. Children reflect their parents. Resourceful parents will produce resourceful children. Kind parents will produce kind children. Undisciplined parents will produce undisciplined children. Often, to the horror of many parents, you'll see your own flaws in your kids. And many, that's, I imagine for a lot of you guys, a horrific experience. My dad said once to me when he saw me doing some dodgy stuff, I remember him like saying, oh, I can't believe he's doing what I used to do. And to him, that was horrific. And I imagine if, you know, my child, uh, when he grows up, if, if, you know, I see my, my sin in him, that would be a horrifying experience. But often we are the same as our parents. And so Paul says, if you are a child of God, you will reflect the character of God. If you are his beloved child, you will reflect his character. And this isn't something new because throughout the book of, um, uh, in the book of Leviticus, for instance, 19.2, God says, be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. We are called throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, to imitate God, be imitators of God. Uh, holiness, uh, just as a definition, holiness means set apart. It means set apart. It means different. And so God calls us not just to be like him, but being like him makes us set apart from the world. If we're just like the rest of the world, then we're probably not set apart. We're probably not even children of God. And so... Uh, for instance, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says this, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And see, Paul sees Jesus sort of like an apprenticeship. So let's imagine uh, you're a tradie and you just picked up your apprenticeship and you've, you've come alongside this, this master tradesman and you've asked him to take you on board and he's going to teach you everything you need to know about your trade. He's going to teach you everything you need to know so you can be successful in your trade and you can make your trade work and it would be foolish to not look at what the other apprentices are doing, especially if they're a second, third, fourth year apprentice. It would be foolish not to look at what they're doing and want to learn from them. 
because they've been in your place quite recently actually been where you are where you're starting and so looking at where they are as they imitate the master tradesmen you could potentially move through all the skills you need to get a lot quicker than if you simply um, if you simply just didn't pay any attention to them and it's, it's kind of what Paul is getting at here follow other Christians Christians that have gone ahead Christians that have imitated God Christians that have learned from God uh, learn from those people because the, as, as they follow Christ. So we're not learning from them just in their personality, but them as Christians. Them and their Christian walk is what they do with Christians. And so if you want to learn how to be a Christian and be a better Christian and to learn how to follow Jesus more, sometimes it's good to just come alongside someone who's gone before you. Come alongside someone that's already walked your path and can show you and help you um, and help you come along the way. And so if you think about the Apostle John... He's going up to this dangerous mountains as an old man. And he's kind of set this amazing example of love. All those other church leaders. Imagine that pastor now. Who kind of watched this young man fall into sin and run off into the mountains. And he never thought for a second, run off into those mountains and chase that boy down. And now that he's seen John do that, do you think his ministry is going to be changed? Oh yeah. I'm hearing about this story 2,000 years later and my ministry has been changed by that. By seeing John's example following Christ, we can learn how better to follow Christ as well, can't we? And so the basis for love is this. It's the sacrificial love of God. If you want to have a a transformed life, it has to be marked by the love of God. Your life has to be marked by the love of God. Because God's love is sacrificial God's love is way deeper and way vast, more vast and more, and more wide than our love. And if we don't understand the basis for love being in Jesus and what he has done on the cross, we're not going to understand what love is. We're going to struggle to understand what love is. And that leads us to where Paul is going to go, the disordered love. When love gets out of control and put all in the wrong places. See, the Apostle Paul, he's going to go quote a list and he's going to list a few vices. And they're markers, in Paul's mind, of the outside world. These are not things that should be among the saints. And we've already learned that saints means Christians, those who are set apart by God, those who have been saved. So Christians have to be set apart and they have to not live in these particular vices. What are they? Verse 3, sexual immorality. All impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Now, we already know these things. We've already known these things, uh, that they should not mark the lives of the Ephesians church. It's kind of almost a repeat of, of the last section we had, the last sermon I had. But Paul, when he's reminding us, he's reminding us because this is important. Because we need to get this. And often the job of a preacher, the job of someone preaching a sermon, is to tell you what you already know again and again and again, because we take a long time to get those truths hammered into our heads, don't we? It takes us a while to internalize these things. And so Paul is reminding us, sexual immorality should not be part of us. Impurity, covetousness should not be part of us. Well, let's go through those real quick. Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And it simply means this. It means any sexual act, alone or with someone, consensual or unconsensual, outside of the covenant of marriage. 
That's what sexual immorality is. Any sexual act outside of marriage, alone or with someone or other people, consensual or unconsensual, that's what sexual immorality is. And today, it is just as controversial as it was back then when he said it. Because the pagan Roman culture that he was writing in, into the church of Ephesus, their surroundings, they were out of control. The sexual immorality that was going on there was out of control. That had these sexual festivals. That had big orgies. It was, it was just crazy, the kind of stuff that would go on back then. Very controversial then, very controversial now. Impurity means unclean or dirty. It's basically any moral act that defiles a person. Uh, it can be anything from murder to adultery. And the last one he says is covetousness. And that is desiring something from someone and taking advantage of them, taking advantage of others, stealing. doesn't necessarily mean stealing. It's kind of like envy, wanting things desperately that other people have. And so the reason Paul is hitting these so hard is he's not trying to be judgmental. He's not trying to feel superior to other people that do practice these things. He's not trying to put himself up on a pedestal. It's because these things are disordered loves. They're disordered loves. And what do I mean by that? Well, all of these things are self-indulgent, selfish, self-centered. All of these things can be termed by self-love. If you do all these things, it's because you love yourself. You're not willing to commit to another person, so you're willing to use their body for your own pleasure without any commitment. Willing to bail whenever you need to, that's self-love. That's self-love. All of these things are full of self-love. And so, because a person who experiences the sacrificial committed love of Jesus couldn't possibly be willing to use another person's body in that way, without any sacrifice or commitment, they'll be willing, what kind of uh, Christian would be willing to be impure or defiled in order to bring about their own pleasure, to bring about their own gratification, their own self-love. The center of the cross is loving the other. Jesus says you can sum up all the commands in two things. What were they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The reason he can say love your neighbor as yourself is because you already love yourself a lot. Jesus is saying love your neighbor that much. That is hard to do. That is very hard to do because we already love ourselves a lot. You may say, no, Cody, I hate myself. I can't stand myself. I can't stand who I am. I can't stand the things that I've done. I'm like, the reason you can't stand those things is because you think you ought to have done better. You should be better. You should look better. You should have these things better. It's wrapped up in self-love, isn't it? You want to be in a better position. You wish that God had given you more. You wish that you could be on this pedestal. Self-hate does actually stem from self-love. Self-love is a disordered love. All these three things are disordered love. Love is very strong, but it's only for themselves. And so this is the behavior of people who profess to know God, but have not been transformed by the love of God, have not understood the love of God. He goes on, verse 4, it's going to slam us again, let's get into it. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul says these are out of place. These things should not be part of the church. If there is part of the church, something has gone wrong. 
at the deepest level, something has gone wrong in the church. The love of Jesus has not entered into our hearts. So all these things are out of place and they're not acts of love towards others. I mean, you read this and you're like, yeah, okay, this isn't an act of love towards others. I don't need to explain that to you. You know that's not the case. And we need to know this because Paul says, verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Did you catch that little phrase in the brackets that was in there? What was the phrase? An idolater. An idolater. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous is what? What does Paul say? They're an idolater. Okay, well, what does idolatry mean? It means someone who worships an idol. Someone who worships a God that is not the true God, not the God of the Bible. They worship some other God. Well, what is the God they're worshipping here? Where is the God? Why does the God just... I can't see a God in this passage. Ah, there is one though, isn't there? There's a God there. Who do you think it is? Themselves. Themselves. They love themselves. They think the world revolves around them. They think they should be able to call the shots. They should be able to get their own way. That their comfort, safety, security, money, wealth, status belongs to them and they're going to jealously guard it and they don't care who they destroy in the process. And it's deep at the core of who we are as human beings. We are all idolatrous. And here Paul says, the person who does that does not worship the God of the Bible, does not worship Jesus, but they worship themselves. He says this should not be the mark of a Christian. It should not even be named among us. And the travesty is, look around the church, is that named among us? Yeah, it is. But it shouldn't be named among saints. So we looked at the um, basis for love, the sacrificial love of Jesus, and we've looked at the opposite, the disordered love, self-love. So this brings me to my third point, and that is the truth of love. The truth of love. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We can easily be deceived. The easiest thing, easiest way to be deceived is for someone to tell you what you already want to hear. If you, if someone comes along, you'll be like, dude, get that promotion. Money, your money is your money. Take that money. Build, like, buy that home. Go do all of those things. Buy that dog. Have that dream life. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with that dream life. And I'm not saying even now that there's something wrong with that. But that lie that someone can easily give to us. You know why it's easily deceiving? Because you already want those things in the first place. It's easier as a salesman if you're trying to convince someone for a bill of goods that you already want. You're much more willing to buy. And uh, Sorry, Paul says, don't let people deceive you with empty words. They're empty. And we easily can be deceived. People will always be like, you know... Get rid of those old traditions, man. Like, free love, that thing. You know, we shouldn't be restraining ourselves. It's unhealthy to restrain yourselves. We should be, you know, out there enjoying each other's bodies. And man, that's a, you know, that's tempting, isn't it? Why? Because we all have sex drives. We all have those desires. 
And man, it's nice to get those things without the commitment, isn't it? Because you don't have to commit to that person. When a better, a better option comes along, you can be like, see you later, head off to the next one. People will deceive you with that. People will deceive you with that. People deceive you with all sorts of things. They'll tell you to pursue your own dreams, to get stuff, uh, care about what other people think of you. And they're easy to deceive you, but they're empty. They're empty. Why are they empty? Because those people have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know God. They don't know His Word. And even Christians will tell you these things, right? Don't let Christians deceive you. Don't let me deceive you. This is your bedrock. The Word is your bedrock. If I ever say anything that contradicts this Word, guess what? The Word is the binding thing. Throw whatever I said out. doesn't matter what I say. What I say is not important. What God says is important. Don't let me deceive you either with empty words. Come to the Bible and hear from God. And hear from God. And you'll realize, because, I mean, it's, it's high stakes. It's high stakes. Because he says here, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And sometimes in loving someone, you have to tell them the truth. Some uncomfortable truths. Something that's awkward. Something that's hard to say. Here Paul is telling us, well, here Paul is loving us in telling us these uncomfortable truths. He is loving you by telling you this. He's not telling you this to make your life harder. He's telling you this so that your life can be full of joy, that you can know the love of God, and that you can be wrapped up in the love of God. God is a perfect and righteous judge. And what happens when sinners like us show up before a perfect and righteous judge? It doesn't go well for us, does it? But because of Jesus and his sacrifice and swapping places and taking on our sin, clothing us in his righteousness, changing places, we can know that we can stand before God completely clean, free from sin, knowing that we have eternity with him. So we shouldn't forget this first verse. Let's circle back around verse 1. That Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. That Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. If you're a Christian, you were once a son of disobedience. You were once a son of disobedience. Now what is that? It basically means an offspring of disobedience, but not just an offspring, but an imitator of disobedience. If you remember what I said before, you know, like a resourceful family will produce resourceful children or an undisciplined family will produce undisciplined children. Well, if you are, if you are a child of Adam, now we're seeing Adam show up again in the text. He was the disobedient one. He was the one who took the fruit and were all his children. But we're not just his children because we're born with original sin, but we're his children because we sin by choice. We want to. We've made those decisions. We're all in trouble. We were once sons of disobedience. And Paul's kind of implicitly reminding the Ephesian church, you were once like this. He he actually did do that last last, uh, week. We saw that. And we imitate Adam in his disobedience before we know Jesus. But we've taken off that old man. And what have we put on? on the new man and put on Jesus. And so we used to continue to turn our backs on God and choose disobedience like Adam did. We went down his path, but something's happened. We're his children. Paul says, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. Beloved children. You're not just the child of God. 
but you're his beloved child. You're not just part of God's family, but you are a valued member of God's family. He, in particular, loves you. See, we don't live our lives as in service to God, just as mere followers, but as his dearly beloved children. Beloved children. Thomas Goodwin, he put it like this. Here's a child, he says. Imagine a little boy walking along with his father. This boy knows that his father loves him. This boy knows that he is the son of the father. But then all of a sudden, the father picks the boy up, hugs him, kisses him, and whispers in his ear, I love you, and I will do anything necessary, even die, to give you anything you need. And the boy weeps. What's going on here? Has the boy received any new information about his father? No. He's not received any new information about his father. Is he more of a son than he was before? No, he's not. He's not more of a son than he was before. He doesn't get a new idea about his father, but the idea becomes new. He doesn't get new information, but the information becomes new. What it means to know God is to feel his embrace. Is to know that you're beloved, not simply because it's information, but because it's a real experience. You might say, how have I experienced it? It's in the knowledge that you, while you were a child of disobedience, Christ gave himself up for you. It's not when you cleaned your act up. It's not when you came to him desperate. It's before all of that. It was while you were an enemy, while you were hostile. A person transformed by this message couldn't possibly live a life expecting and taking advantage of others person transformed by the love of God is transformed. Do you think that that boy walking with his father after his father said that to him was transformed by that act? He was. He learned no new information, but the information became new. And so those that are of God are his children, and their lives will be different to the rest of the world because they have the love of God. And you're not just his child, but his beloved child. It produces awe, it produces wonder at the thought that I am saved. Little old you, who couldn't believe it? Your little old you got saved. Little old you was loved by God. Little old you was brought in. What a wonderful message. <laughs> that should fill us with awe and wonder. It's a miracle. Really. Do you believe it's a miracle? Because it is. It's a straight up miracle bringing you from death to life. It is a massive deal what God has done in your life. God didn't have to do anything for me. He could have left me to where I deserved, but he gave me what I didn't deserve, grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor because he loved us. And so that's the basis of love. If you understand it, it will protect you from disordered love. It will protect you from disordered love and it will lead you into the truth of love. It's a wonderful message. If you've lost this uh, sense of wonder about your adoption into God's kingdom, into God's household, you know, you slip more and more into moralism and thinking that you've got to get, you've got to tick all those boxes, tick all the to-dos, and God may appreciate you, God may be pleased with you. You slide back into thinking, well, I guess what it means to be a Christian is just to do. 
Here's real Christianity. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? See, that wonder is the mark that you know the Lord. That awe is the mark that you have experienced him. You know the privilege it means to be his child, but not just his child, but his beloved child. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that we get to boast in you, that you have drawn us into your kingdom and called us your own, even while we were sinners, Lord, that you saw us before the foundation of the world alone and lost, and by your spirit revived us, caused us to be born again, and brought us into your household. And Lord, I would be content with being the doorkeeper in your courts. But Lord, you have welcomed us all in as beloved children, dearly loved, each and every one of us. Lord, I pray for my friends here today. I pray, Lord, that you would be awakening to them once again afresh the wonder and awe of what it means to be loved by you. Help us imitate you, Lord, as your children. Help us walk in your ways and be holy as you are holy knowing that great joy is there. Help us glorify you in all the things we do. Let us put away all these sins and vices. Let us not use our tongues to attack those around us, but help us, Lord, to have a filter, to know what we need to say to build other people up. Lord, help us. We know that you're sovereign, that you care about us, and that you lead us all into greater love and appreciation for you. Pray your spirit, we continue that work all the more in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.